Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hey out there in archaeology podcast land, this is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel introducing the uh, 88th rock art extravaganza. We're going to have uh, Matt Zubia, who's involved with the Petroglyph Festival. He's the chair of the Petroglyph Education Foundation and has been responsible for bringing in the uh, Native American involvement, the talent, the musicians, and a festival that is uh, unique and extraordinary. I think you'll like it. He's a brilliant man, and I've learned a lot. Well, hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, with the California Rock Art Foundation, and we're honored and blessed to have a guest scholar, Matthew Zubia, who is the principal of the particular nonprofit foundation, for uh, petroglyphs out of the Ridgecrest area. And we're going to be talking to him about just what that's all about, how he got involved with the study of rock art and native, all, native, all things related to native culture. And in turn, uh, a bit about the history and evolution of the only petroglyph festival that exists, I think, on this earth out of uh, Ridgecrest, California. Matt, are you with us today? Yes, I am. Well, welcome. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you. Thank I think you. we had a quite an interesting uh, dialogue last time we were on the phone. And the way I usually open this up is to let you sort of introduce yourself and talk about a bit about your background and how you uh, got involved with this rather esoteric subject. 
I got involved with the Ridgecrest Petroglyph Festival in 2014 from its inception. And historically, my expertise is in, in, um, in music. I'm a musician, and that was my draw to the festival and helping out with it because they needed some performers and some, some entertainment for the stage. That has that evolved over the years, and I became more involved in the, the educational aspect of the Petroglyph Festival. I became the chairman of the Petroglyph Education Foundation, where we do outreach with the local schools. And that's a nonprofit, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And the purpose of the educational uh, Petroglyph Foundation is? To do outreach with the uh, the schools in the local uh-huh. area. And yeah. we work with the Mataranga Museum. And also a big component of it for me and as part of our mission is outreach to the local Native American tribes. Absolutely. That's that's true. And to encourage their involvement in the Ridgecrest Petroglyph Festival. Yes. And of course, Matt, you and I are sort of linked in that sphere because I've been advising and attempting to position the festival appropriately vis-a-vis the, a complement of, of local Native people and those that would be considered, I guess, reasonable and prudent and in alignment with the major mission and geography and emphasis for the festival, if that makes any sense. It does. So maybe give me a bit of history as, as to why and how this all evolved and how, where we've been and where we're at and where we're headed with respect to the festival itself. Maybe that's where we'll get started. Sure. Well, the 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 idea for the festival is uh, it was kind of twofold at the time when it started, and one it was to I don't know if showcase is the right word, but the the petroglyphs that we have here in the area, and to bring a a new kind of festival to Ridgecrest that involved the Native American tribes in the area. There's been some bumps along the way, and we haven't always been aligned with the Native American tribes and sometimes lost the spirit and intent of what we set out to do. But over the course of the last three years, it's been my mission and my goal to ensure that with all due respect to the Native Americans, that that this is an all-inclusive festival and to ensure what we're putting on is indeed in line with the spirit and intent of, of what we set out to do. My intent was to have all the performers on the stage for 2021 to be Native American. And that's the first year that we achieved that. Yeah, an emphasis or showcase the Native people, I would think of the region, correct? And then then also even a broader sort of concentration or backdrop to demonstrate, communicate, and educate the general public on who the Native people are, what they represent, how they view the world, and that they're still here. They're not in the past. This is a lively and contemporary and vital expression and we'd like to be able to share that. Now, I know that uh, it, this has evolved again, and I know that there's been a, you know, it's been, a, it's been a challenging thing to demonstrate to Native people, I think locally, the viability and the longevity and the function or purpose of the festival. Am I correct or no? Yeah, you are correct. Uh, it has been, as you said, challenging over the years because at the beginning of the the festival in 2014, we had several Native Americans who were with us and helping to put this on. But in the end, there's always seems to be some concern outside of planning the festival from other entities, be it Native American tribes 
or others that aren't really in line with what we're trying to do. And it's my goal to make sure that that we are aligned with as many tribes and local areas as we, as we can be aligned with. That's why the Petroglyph Education Foundation is important to continue the outreach with those tribes. Definitely. Now, so that everyone understands, Ridgecrest is in the area called Eastern California, the corner of the Western Mojave or the Southwestern Great Basin, just east of the Sierras. And there's actually quite a number of different ethnic groups, indigenous, Native American groups that exist in that area. In the far southern Sierras, in the mountains around Lake Isabella and up into the uplands, there's a group called the Tabatalabal, that means pinion pine nut eaters. Then to the south, they have a group called the Kawaiasu, and those are uh, their southern Paiute speakers. And then we've got the Timbisha, or the Panamachishone, in Death Valley. And then just to the north, we've got the Owens Valley Paiute, and a little bit further north, we've got the Mono Lake Paiute, or Kuzetika Paiute. So potentially, actually, the rock art itself and the uh, region is sort of a magnet for quite a number of different ethnic groups. Is that correct? It is correct, yeah. The, the, you, you named all of the, the, the tribes in the area that would have contributed to the area in, in terms of the, uh, the petroglyphs that we have out here. So you named a couple of tribes there that I know for sure now because I booked them that we have scheduled yes. to perform and, and, and be involved in our festival coming up in November. Now, when you say perform, are they speaking? Are they, are they going to be doing music? What particular activities are they part of at the festival? So there are going to be some cultural exchange presentations where they provide high-quality presentations for the event. The tribe I'm referring to now are the, the Big Paiute slash Taos Pueblo. They'll be yes. doing some exchange presentations for us. We do have a Mono Lake Paiute who will be doing a basket weaving demonstration as well. Excellent. Excellent. I know that at one point we had the Tabatalabal that were there, the South Fork Kern River Indians. And I know even another time we had the folks from Panamint Valley and Death Valley who are the Timbushara Panamint Shoshone. They're also at times called the Koso. So I know I've seen them. Yeah, we, I have reached out directly to the Timbushara Shoshone and I'm trying to, to book them to come out and participate in the festival. That's currently TBD on getting them out here. Sure. You mentioned the Tabatalabal. And the, I was first introduced to Tabatalabo last year, and uh, it was pretty exciting because they agreed to come down at the last minute and perform for us. And I, wow. I um, developed a, a quick bond with the gentleman who came down, uh, Daryl Garcia, and was looking forward to having him bring his, uh, his art down here again this year. But unfortunately, I won't be able to have him down here this year. I am working, however, with, with the Tabatalabo tribe, and I do have some phone calls with them later today to talk about their possibility of coming down here and, and being part of the festival. Great. I know that Samantha Red Riding Horse is very active in trying to demonstrate, communicate, and educate others regarding the nature and character of their tribe and the language. I know the Kawaiasu, in fact, have a very vibrant language and cultural expression, teaching the language, etc. And I know the Panamachishone or the... Um, the Timbusha, the Koso people there are sometimes represented actually in Bishop. There are some Koso there, and then uh, others are living in Death Valley. So 
it's, it's rather interesting. It's a mosaic. The other thing that's interesting, and I didn't really understand this until relatively recently, I was out at Little Lake, and Little Lake is part of the, the broader Coso range. It's a privately owned duck club that has about, let's say, 7,000 individual instances of rock art, both petroglyphs, rock drawings, and rock paintings. And when one studies those images, some of them appear to have affiliation to what's called the grapevine style. And that's, that's a particular style that was represented most enthusiastically or prolifically with the Mojave Indians. They're also called, uh, some of them are called the Kitsan. They're agriculturalists. They live on the Colorado River. And one of the things they did was they were runners and traders and travelers. So they ran across east-west from the Colorado River all the way to the Chumash country. And one of the places they stopped was Little Lake. And so there's images there that are probably representational to them stopping at this particular spot. They also the Mojave would identify geographic places in their own language. So they had a, a trail that they followed. And one of, the, one, of the, one of those places that they did have was in the Kosos at Little Lake, which is where they stopped. And I believe they had a name for that spot as well, which is, I think, another sort of, you know, interesting facet of the connection between Native American groups throughout the far West. Interesting, isn't it? It is. That uh, that's very interesting, and it you know it kind of all comes together as I as I do my outreach to the various tribes in the area, and I'm learning constantly about how the uh, the relationships developed in the past and where we are today uh, with our relationship with the with the local tribes. Well, I think that'll do it for the first segment. Why don't we uh, segue to the next one, and we'll dig a little deeper into some of the nuances of all this. See you in the flip flop, gang. Keep this conversation going by joining our members-only Slack team. There's always vibrant conversations going on over there between members and hosts about the topics we're podcasting about and more. Also get access to our back catalog of bonus material and ad-free shows. You get all this for $7.99 a month or less than $80 US per year if you get the annual subscription. Support archaeological education and outreach by supporting the APN. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back. This is segment two of the 88th Rock Art Podcast from the Archaeology Podcast Network. And we have Matt Zubia on board, and he is the director of the, the Educational Foundation with the festival out of Ridgecrest. Matt, why don't we probe a little deeper, drill down, and talk about your association with the music elements, the entertainment elements that were available at the last festival? At the last festival, as previously stated, we had uh, an all Native American talent at the stage. Prior to that, we we hosted a couple of different acts that were Native American, and then the rest of the, the acts were 
you know, local bands that played some type of folk music or rock music, but it wasn't it wasn't in keeping with the spirit and intent of the you know the the festival, and that was that was done to fill the stage because we had such a hard time finding Native American talent. Now I know that there's there's plenty of Native American groups out there that that perform and play music. They just we hadn't lined up the right connections to find them. What were those right connections? Please share that with us because I know how difficult I found it to identify and cultivate the proper associations. Well, credit to you, Dr. Allen. You put us in contact with the, the Ram Dancers from Supai, Arizona, uh, the Havasupai people, and uh, they yes. were they were an absolute hit. It took us two years to find them and get them. Yeah, so you, you set the groundwork for that, and that was a huge find for the festival, and they were a hit while they were here for the several years we had them. So that was... That was uh, one of the connections that we had uh, through you. And then also working with our promoter, uh, Ramon, had helped us land some connections as well with this group called DDAT. And that name used to stand for Defi Delbert Anderson Trio. So they're a, a, a group out of New Mexico, and they play some, a type of funky, poetic, you know, type music with a stand-up bass and a trumpet. And then they have a front man, who doesn't sing, but he he raps. And so it's not rap in, in the true sense of the word where you're thinking, you know, as, as rap comes across, but it's a rap and it's all uh, based on, on their experiences. They were a hit. They've been the main act for us for a couple of years. And uh, this is a group that's been featured on NPR, Yahoo, Sirius XM, et cetera, and Ted talks. Wow. So they're, they're, they're renowned, uh, renowned group and they've, uh, been able to come out here the times we've had them and, and perform for us. Well, that's, that's certainly a coup. I, I heard them and I really liked them, in fact. And uh, I was surprised to find a, you know, a fully Native American group that was involved in this rather eclectic music. It was quite uh, surprising and wonderful. That's correct. So who else did you get? Well, two years ago, well, before the pandemic in 2019, we had a young lady who I met who's Navajo. And uh, she she was able to, she told me she could sing the national anthem in Navajo. So I brought her up to the stage, I put her on the spot, and she sang it. And I decided, well, you know what? I haven't been to a festival yet where we have started the festival with the national anthem. So I said, in 2021, we're going to do that. And and this young lady is going to sing the national anthem for us in Navajo. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was a great, that was a great hit. Oh, oh, my word. That makes my heart sing. That was, that's brilliant. I love it. When we did the uh, field trips, when we were allowed to do field trips into Little Petroglyph Canyon, one of the mm-hmm. highlights, highlights, was when I had brought in a Native American with me who sang a prayer in her indigenous language before mm-hmm. we traveled into the canyon. And it brought a number of people to tears. And it was, you could hear a pin drop. It was so remarkable to listen to this woman sing in her native language and about her feelings and her you know thoughts and prayers before we entered the canyon just remarkable yeah that's what that does to people i looked around first of all it was the first time that we presented the national anthem at the festival we opened it with that and to present it in the navajo language by a navajo i think was the it was the height of my time with the festival, because this is where we've always wanted to be. But as I looked around during the, the national anthem that, that she was singing, 
people were just, they stopped in their tracks. People were walking by, you know, and it was a national anthem. So rightfully they, they were, they were standing, but if they were walking by, they stopped to, you know, very interested in, in, in what she was singing. To venerate and pay homage to both the national anthem and an indigenous person singing it in their language is so remarkable as to, you know, really be a very special experience. So other acts we've had at the at the festival, he's a veteran with us. He's been with us for a, a lot of years, uh, Terry Goodell. He world-renowned hoop dancer, and he's been a dedicated performer of ours for several years. And just a quick tidbit about that, because we're still in our infant stages as festivals go, we're still learning as we go, you know, things logistically, and where do we put the stage to get the most people to the stage? And in years past, we had the stage in a position where trying to draw people to go see Terry do the hoop dance. It was it was disappointing because uh, we weren't getting the crowd that we needed. So we decided to the stage placement was very important, and we put it in a spot this year where people had to walk by it. And let me tell you, Terry was he was ecstatic with the audience participation he had this past year because it was the most he's ever had in all the shows he's done for us over the course of the time he's been coming. And so you see we're still learning where to put things as we go through this planning. Yeah, that's really special. And that gives sort of an insight into sort of the internal planning and the dynamics of trying to put on a festival and to try to get the right people to see and experience what you're trying to accomplish, isn't it? It is. It is. And credit to all the, the, the people that I'm surrounded with that have the same goal that I do is to put on the best festival we can, making sure that we are, are you know, doing it with the most utmost respect to the people who we are honoring. When I talked to your executive director, she had told me that there's some new ideas that they're actually going to have some sort of a large, larger function, an Indian powwow of sorts there. And that will kind of change everything, won't it, a little bit? It will. And, you, and you, you, you touched on another one of my missions and goals as I, you know, learn my way through this festival planning and, and, and going out and doing the outreach that I like to do. And that is I set out to find somebody of, of Native American descent that could help or organize a powwow. And so I... I went on a mission to find somebody, and, and thankfully I was able to find somebody who agreed to organize a powwow. And so we worked close with uh, with this gentleman, giving him a lot of freedom to put on the powwow, how he knows how to put it on. A, a very little interaction from the Petroglyph Festival Committee because we don't know how to put on a powwow. We leave that to our Native American friends to do. So what what is a powwow per se? So a powwow is a uh, it's a celebration of dance and songs. If you've been to a powwow, you can you know see a powwow on the internet or, or or TV. What a powwow looks like. You've got a head drum, and the head it kind of revolves around the head drum because the head drum is it's a drum that sits on the ground or on a stand that the powwow attendees or the powwow participants will gather around and play the drum and sing the songs while the arena director invites dancers into the arena and then eventually audience participation. So it's a uh, traditional celebration for the uh, Native American tribes. 
And which tribes specifically are going to be participating? Do you know? I do. Yes. Currently we have, so our, our organizer is Apache. We'll have Paiute. We'll have Ojibwe. And there's a couple more that have not gotten word yet, but primarily right now there's, there's three that I know of. And the organizer is uh, supposed to get back to me on the other, other uh, tribes that are going to be participating in the powwow specifically. Will there also be vendors that are associated with this powwow, particular native groups that are selling perhaps uh, jewelry or, or other elements of their culture? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we have always had Native American vendors at the festival participating. And because we're having a powwow this year, the way that a powwow works is that if you if you're at a powwow that's not associated with a festival, mm-hmm. then you have all you have Native American vendors at the powwow. So in this case, instead of having our Native American vendors spread out amongst all our other vendors on the street, right. they will be associated directly with the powwow. So the powwow will be exclusive Native American yeah. vendors. Well, that'll be exciting, I think, because you can have a almost a pure essence of Native American associations there together, couldn't you? That is correct, yes. Well, what's interesting to lend a sort of a, a different scholarly background or academic research background to all this and Native Americans is I have co-authored a book coming out here in the next, I don't know, six months to a year. And it's an academic treatise talking about what we call Uto Aztecans and their their symbolism, specifically going from Koso, talking about also the Hopi in the Southwest, the Huichol in South Texas, and then moving into uh, Mexico or Mesoamerica and talking about those of the Aztec, you know, the Nahuatl people. So in any event, there appears to be a, a thread, genetic thread, linguistic thread, a connection running from Koso in the Great Basin across to the American Southwest, into the, you know, South Texas and into Mexico. And that's linguistically, but also iconographically when it comes to certain key symbols. And this particular new book is a bit of a revolutionary take. It's really the first time it's really been developed that we can recognize this connection. So I think that's, that's of, of interest and it sort of parallels your work in terms of bringing together a diverse array of Native Americans. Am I correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. Well, I think that at least uh, covers the second segment. And in the third one, I think we'll talk about some very specific uh, efforts with the festival and talk about some of the the up-and-coming things. See you in the flip-flop, gang. What do you use for appointment and task scheduling? I used to constantly move things around in my calendar that were just tasks I needed to do in favor of meetings. Now I let an intelligent AI do that with Motion. In Motion, all I have to do is create tasks with a soft or hard deadline, state how long I think it will take and whether it can be broken up, and Motion does the rest. It puts the task where it's a best fit for me getting it done by the deadline. The scheduler then puts appointments with people wherever they schedule and moves the tasks around them. Support the APN with a little kickback if you sign up and try Motion for free at www www.arcpodnet.com slash motion. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. 
worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey, out there in rock art podcast land or petroglyphs and pictographs such as it is, this is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel bringing you segment three. This is the final segment of our third element. We are blessed and featuring a gentleman by the name of Matthew Zubia, who is the director of the, of the Petroglyph Foundation and associated with the Petroglyph Festival in Ridgecrest. So Matt, I think in this final segment, we had talked about kind of drilling down and talking about really the heart and soul and purpose of the festival, which pays homage and venerates and recognizes the importance of Native people, their heritage, and their particular cultural values. Why don't we try to kick off some sort of discussion on that subject? Well, I think you hit it the nail on the head, Alan, when you said that uh, you know it's an homage to the Native American tribes, because that's something that only us who are involved with this type of event and, and these types of you know traditions really understand the importance and the value that it adds to what we're doing. I had a gentleman as part of the big, the big Pine Paiute Taos Pueblo tribe. Uh, when I reached out to him, they hadn't come down here before. And when I reached out to him and, and asked him if he'd be interested, he was very thankful for including them and bringing this back to them. And that made me uh, it made me excited and and also. It, it may be full warm inside that we, we're doing the right thing. At least we're, we're starting to do the right thing. So it's important to uh, Native Americans that, that if we're going to do this, then we're going to do it right. And in that regard, what is it to do it right and what is it to do it wrong? What are the particular elements or postures or perspectives that one might have that are considered in alignment with perhaps native philosophies? Well, the first thing that is important is the outreach that we do to get to as many and the, many local tribes as possible to kind of enlighten them on what our goal is and have them steer us in the direction that, that it's probably a lot more coming from, from us who are organizing it, us non-native Americans that are organizing it. Uh, to, to take us in the right direction. I want them to, to come with us on this path. I don't want to do it without them. And so it's important for, for us to, to recognize that. You know, early on in the festival days, we got some pretty bad feedback in that it was just another street fair in Ridgecrest. Yes, there were petroglyph tours, but it just looked like another street fair. Right. And that's something you, you learn along the way. And it's been my goal to not make this a street fair and make it what it was set out to be. So the core competency and the distinctiveness of the Ridgecrest Petroglyph Festival is that it celebrates and recognizes and pays homage to Native American heritage and culture. And I think that's a rather special expression. And 
I think that the ancient images that adorn immediate landforms in the area are quite special. And also, there's probably one of the only examples of what they call Petroglyph Park. Would you like to mention that or no? Absolutely, yes. So we do have a park in Ridgecrest that is called Petroglyph Park, where there are replicas that line the park in various areas of petroglyphs. And each year at the festival, we we offer... Walking tours. Walking tours, yes, and with Dr. Allen and uh, Olaf Dowd, who was responsible, responsible for, for making them. <laughs> for making, yes, for making those. Yeah. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for, responsible. And, and this isn't just, you know, little tiny boulders. We're talking about tons and tons and tons of stone that were hauled in and erected and engineered and replicate images from all over the world, in fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Credit to to Olaf. And he will be providing tours again this year. And we look forward to keeping him around as as long as he'll be with us. Exactly. I was shocked to learn, you know, what, what they had to do to put this together. And it wasn't easy. And he did all the imagery in the entire park. (laughs) <laughs> one man you believe that? did all this. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. And once you uh, see this, you'll get a kick out of it. It's rather important and uh, rather wonderful. And the images are often life-size, meaning they're equivalent to the originals. And they're huge. We're talking about these immense rocks, which are standing up and representing or replicating the uh, images to be found both in the immediate vicinity, but also throughout the world. So anyways, there's that one. What have we forgotten? We've got the vendors, we got the powwow, we got the walking tour. I guess there will also be vendors that are selling artwork and books. And then of course, the Matarango Museum will be open, as well as the new and improved and brand new Welcome Center to California. There in Ridgecrest, correct? Yes, that is correct. And last year was actually the grand opening for the Visitor Center, Welcome Center. What's a Welcome Center? The California Welcome Center provides area information for people coming through the town as tourists. So up and down the Eastern Sierra, over as far as as Death Valley, offering uh, a lot of information on the area. Right. It's got maps. It's got resources. It's got people who are steeped in the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the access and the other attractions and uh, how to get there and what you can do. But besides that, there's kind of, kind of a bit of info or infotainment actually in the center itself, isn't there? There is, yeah. There is a virtual reality station where you can uh, take a virtual tour of Death Valley. And uh, I just learned today that they also have and we'll be offering during the festival virtual tours of the petroglyphs. Yes. And that's put together by a world-class expert in virtual reality. He works all over the world and uses this technology to uh, capture three-dimensionally the wonder of certain historic resources. His name is Eric Hansen. I've had the pleasure of working with him. He's one of our board members for the California Rock Art Foundation. And remarkable, just remarkable what he's done. He was in China 
and did some of that work. He was in the Arctic Circle. He was in uh, Egypt on the Nile. He uh, gets around. <laughs> and he also did uh, quite a bit of work in uh, Mexico on the peninsula of Baja doing some of his VR virtual reality work for um, the largest prehistoric paintings in the world, in the Sierra de San Francisco. And so I think some of that work is available on your VR headsets there at the Welcome Center, isn't it? I, I believe it is, yeah. I haven't personally yeah. Yeah. experienced VR at that location, but it's something that they do offer, and I think it'll be a hit as the festival comes around. Now you have to go to the the Welcome Center to use them. They won't be deployed to the festival site, but they'll be there all day long, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Additionally, there's exhibits that talk about various aspects of Indian Wells Valley and uh, what goes on there. Is it there? There is, yes. And I know that one of the things that they showcase there, they use this area, this gorgeous area, for the uh, backdrop of major motion pictures and also commercials and, you know, uh, MTV-like music videos and all kinds of different things, don't they? Yes, they do. And that's one of the things that, that Ridgecrest is known for. People, uh, a lot of production companies use Ridgecrest as a backdrop and the surrounding areas like the Indio Kern Airport, the Trona Pinnacles for their uh, their movie scenes, music videos, commercials. And the gorgeous landscapes of, of Death Valley. Yep. Death Valley or Indian Wells Valley or going up the eastern skirt of the Sierra Nevadas, you've got Bishop and you've got uh, the Alabama Hills and all of that. And this eastern skirt of the Sierras, one of the more remarkable places on earth, I think, for uh, the diversity of vegetation, the amount of cultures that are there, the sky, the landscape. It's endlessly engaging as I as I talk about it. And so it's a good... Uh, it is. I think it's a good setting setting for the Petroglyph Festival. And why don't you give us some of the details as to when the festival is going to be and and where it's going to be located? The festival is going to be it's going to be on the fifth and sixth of November. It's Saturday and Sunday. That's the first weekend in November, isn't it? That is the first weekend in November. And mark your calendars because it's always the first weekend in November. Exactly where in Ridgecrest is it going to be? Sure, uh, in Ridgecrest, Las Flores Avenue between the Matarango Museum and Leroy Jackson Park in Las, Las Flores Avenue. You can get right off the China Lake Boulevard and, and head east. You'll see the signs. You'll see all the action happening. It's 10 to 6 on Saturday the 5th and 10 to 4 on Sunday the 6th. Is there anything happening in the evenings? No, the festival will go until 6 and it'll be over on Saturday at 6 p.m. There's nothing else in the evenings. Okay. And what can one do at the festival. So this year, the biggest draw we hope is going to be the powwow, which we're trying to incorporate okay. into the festival. We're not promoting them as two separate events. The powwow is organized by Pete gotcha. Whitehorse. The festival is produced by you know the, the festival committee, and so uh, there are going to be food vendors. There'll be retail vendors. There's going to be a, a stage where we're going to have all Native American performers uh, throughout the day, and the main group on the stage for Saturday is going to be the Blue Mountain Tribe. They're a uh, from Tehachapi, and they're a blues rock band who play original tunes, and, and all four members are Native Americans, and they have a big following. So we hope to 
uh, attract their uh, their followers to Ridgecrest for their performance. And that's the Blue Mountain Tribe from Tehachapi. Fantastic. Are they local to the Tehachapi area, or do they come from other uh, particular ethnic groups? Do you know? So the different groups that they're from, there's uh, uh, Chiricahua, Apache, Yokuts, and Cherokee in, in that group. So it, it does have a diverse assemblage of ethnic groups that represented with that particular muse, music group, doesn't it? That's correct, yeah. Well, you know, we, we've used up most of our third segment. Is there uh, any sort of segue or message that, that should be a key takeaway from your time together with us, uh, Professor Zubia? <laughs> <laughs> the key takeaway is to understand what the Petroglyph Education Foundation is and why we, we put the festival on and why we celebrate the Native American heritage here in Ridgecrest during the festival. So it's important to know that we understand the sensitivities. We know what our mission is, what our goal is, and that is to continue the outreach with the local Native Americans and throughout that want to participate in this festival. Well, that's wonderful. I think that's eminently defensible and and valuable, and especially in this time of contrast, to bring people together in a loving and positive interaction is a huge blessing. My hat's off to you, Matthew. Thank you. God bless, and see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening.